On today's Truth Factor discussion, we'll continue in our study of Acts chapter 16. Last week, we looked at Timothy joining Paul and Silas on their missionary journey, as it is normally called. We um, saw where they were trying to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of the Lord directed them to go not through Asia, but into Macedonia. And then during the course of that, we got a look at the conversion of a young lady by the name of Lydia, Lydia, both her and her household. Where we're going to pick up here in just a couple of minutes will be at right at verse 16. We find Paul and, si- or Paul and Silas uh, winding up in jail. And it's interesting the events that leads up to their capture and, and what provokes it. So we'll talk about all that here in just a moment. Paul, if you would take a second and let everybody know how they can participate in today's study. John, I'd be very happy to do that as we uh, have those of you who watch each week and those who watch at a later time. If you ever want to find us, you might go to Facebook or YouTube or Twitter and uh, look for Facebook, not Facebook, excuse me, uh, Truth Factor Live, Truth Factor Live. You can also see us and see past episodes on truthfactor.com. And if you're wanting to watch us live uh, each week, it's truthfactor.com and click on the live viewing page. You might like to be able to send us an email. And if you want to send the whole group an email so that we can uh, answer your question and discuss that, it's questions at truthfactor.com. Questions at truthfactor.com. If there might be something more personal that you need to uh, ask a question, uh, you can use any of our first names, uh, whether it's uh, Tom or John or Paul or Brian or Shelton at truthfactor.com. And you can just send that personally to us. And so we're glad that you're here today. We're glad that you uh, have found us on the social media that you may be watching on. And we look forward to today's study. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. So let's go ahead. And we are in episode number 265. For what it's worth, episode number 265. So let's go ahead and start our study today. And let's go ahead and look at the first section. And what I would like to do is to have someone read. And specifically, let's start off with Tom. Tom, what I'd like for you to do, if you would, sir, read verses 16 through 24. 16 through 24. All right. Okay. And and uh, as, as usual, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Uh, and we read there. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of div- divination met us who bought her master's much profit, profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. 
And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. All right. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate your reading that for us. So in this particular section here, there is a question we'd like to present to the chat room. And we'd like for the chat room to consider the following thought. Who did Paul and his companions make angry and what was the charge against them? Why is this different from the previous similar circumstances? So who did Paul and his companions make angry and what was the charge? Why is this different from previous circumstances? And we'll talk about that here in just a couple of minutes. So in this particular section, we see a very interesting, we see a young lady that is possessed by a demon. Um, it refers to it as a spirit of divination in the English Standard Version. But there is something about the situation. There's some sort of um, possession that's taken place. And it has been used as a means of profit because of her seeming apparent ability to foretell the future. If we, uh, fortune telling, I guess, would be what the English Standard Version says. And what makes this a little bit different is that this seems to be bona fide, if you would. Tom, what indicates in the text here that what we're reading is not uh, like the um, the sorcerer who clearly did not have any special powers, the the um, the uh, the sorcerer Simon sorcerer. How do we know that this was actually something beyond nature that was taking place? Well, a part of it I, I would see is in verse number seventeen as she's following Paul and Paul and uh, Silas around. She's able to declare the truth about who Jesus is. You know, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. So she's proclaiming a truth. She sees Paul and Silas and she says that which is the truth. So, and of course, I would say to that, at least in that particular circumstance, she is telling, uh, she's clearly able to identify that which is truthful. Yeah. And according to the text, it's not coming from her, but from the spirit that has possessed her. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the demon that has possessed her. Um, what is, uh, now, here's a, here's a thought I hadn't considered till just now, and it's probably not a good idea to bring it up. But you wonder if this demon was successful in foretelling the future. And if so, what gave the demon the ability to know what was going to happen tomorrow? You know, you know, I, uh, I was actually wondering about that too, John, because I don't know what, uh, of course, the word isn't spirit of divination precisely in the Greek. It refers to a particular spirit. Uh, divination just kind of implies the idea that she could tell something. So I, so I actually, I was sitting here wondering, does it mean she was predicting the future or is she just giving like, uh, you know, business tips or, you know, something, something a little more, um, practical and day to day? I actually wondered what it meant to be a spirit of divination because, because the word is related to the same word that kind of relates itself back to the Greek oracle of Delphi, which was this oracle you could go to to ask what you should do with your, you know, choices and such. So, so I actually wonder what it even means, uh, what, what she was even able to do. Um, and I'm just not sure, John. And it was something that they did make money or profit yeah. off of. Yeah, you, you, yeah, you know, uh, 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 
what comes to my mind is the idea of the ability to read people. And uh, I, I don't know the degree to which she had supernatural powers with a demon. I don't know what kind of powers a demon would have. Uh, he might have a little bit of supernaturalist, but I believe it to be limited and so on. And if you notice the statement that she makes, there's nothing future associated with it. You know, I, I, I haven't done a great deal of study into the idea of fortune telling today, palm readers and all this, what I view to be nonsense. And, and I, I view it to be the works of Satan. But, but with what little I've seen on like television shows and stuff like that, the the way that they the way that they seem to establish credibility is by identifying facts about you now and if they're able to tell you something that you know to be true now when they start to tell you about the future you're going to believe them because of that whether that's truthful or not and and i think a lot of it just has to do with the ability to read people uh, and and there are some people that are very very good at that. They they know about mannerisms. Uh, they know how to listen and pick up on things uh, that are said, and and they just have that ability within themselves. And I think that sometimes that's exploited. And I think that that's what's happening here. I don't know how successful she was at telling the future. All I all I know is she had the she had this demon in her, and, and he was able to look at people and see what they were at the time. You know, I probably should not have said that about fortune telling. That's a very, that's kind of an assumption. Well, the ESV says fortune telling. It is the assumption about future. Um, Brian, I think last week you were suggesting based on the Greek word that is translated here as divination, that the, the spirit may have been speaking as if it was one of the gods that the people believed in, maybe therefore yeah, leading yeah. people astray. Yeah, it is interesting that the word there is is actually a formal name, Huthon, um, which is, uh, I, I think I told you guys last week mistakenly that it was another name for Apollos. It's a name of a, of a god related to Apollos or a, a beast of uh, mythology related to Apollos. Actually, it's more related to the Oracle of Delphi. So, so, and I'm not sure, John, if it's saying that this is a, a, a demon that is masquerading as a Greek god, uh, which, you know, remember Paul told the Corinthians that behind all the, the false gods were demons. So, so that could fit that description. Or if it's just saying it's a spirit like that, you know, and like I said, I, I'm actually, I, I tried to do a little work and I couldn't find anything out that, that made a clarification which one it was. But either way, you know, it, it was, it's interesting that it was specifically, you know, trying to relate itself to this, uh, to this type of oracle uh, that the Greeks were familiar with. I wonder, as, as you mentioned that a while ago, or as we're, we're talking through this, I wonder if maybe what was going on is the instead of going to the normal temple priests to communicate with the false gods, maybe this fellow was charging people a fee to come talk to her. If that makes sense, you know, maybe that's how yeah. he was making his money. Um, and then when they cast the demon out of her, well, then that took that ability away altogether. And so whatever he was, however, he was, um, profiting off of her. He was no longer ever, he was no longer able to do that. So something to think about there. All right. So let's look at the next question here real quick. And let me throw this one over to, um, Paul. Paul, what are your thoughts on why Paul would grow annoyed with the girl announcing the truth regarding 
who they were and what they were doing. I, I found that interesting that, that, that he seems to grow annoyed with this. Yeah, I, I have always uh, understood this to be something uh, that she was doing. I know there's been some discussions today about this, but something kind of nefarious that she's up to, uh, whether it be some kind of an evil spirit or whether it is uh, just uh, that she's crooked. But in, in looking at this, uh, there will be some people who you might not want uh, constantly, uh, even though saying something good, you might not constantly want them following you around and being associated with what their testimony would say about you. Uh, and so um, I'm trying to think of a good example of that. Um it just might not be that you would want. Uh, I, I told a story before about how um, I unfortunately saw a drunk man who knew who I was, uh, and uh, he, the police, had him arrested. And I was trying to uh, get him to cooperate with with those folks who were with him. And, and he said, "That's Paul," and he said, "He's a good man." And it wasn't necessarily the kind of testimony I was looking for, uh, you know, regarding. Uh, how the police might think of me. And so I'm not sure that's it. Or if maybe just Paul's trying to do the work and she's getting in the way of what his purpose is in doing that. Just just a couple of thoughts there. It is an interesting point because people in the public's eye would have known her and who she was and, and her boss or her master who was making money off of her. And now she's attesting to who Paul and Silas was. I could I could possibly see where that would be would come a point of issue maybe. Yeah, it is interesting. All right, let's see. Any other thoughts that we want to bring out on this section? Um, what I do find interesting is if, if if you consider during the life of Christ the number of times of demonic possession, it was as if the demons could not help but declare who Jesus was. You know, and, and it was like, the and this kind of uh, talks about the authority of, of the apostles, when Paul, every time Paulus and Silas was around her, the demon could not help but to declare who they were. You know, um, yeah, it does not seem like she is approaching uh, Paul and Silas here and saying, "Oh, they are servants of the Most High God. They proclaim the way of salvation. We all need to be following them. Uh, yeah. I want to follow after what they're standing for." Uh, when we read in James about the demons believe and tremble. Uh, it, it's not a, a submissive kind of way of believing here in who the, who these men were in the Most High God and that they're teaching a right way. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a submissive, uh, oh, let's let's go do this, but just uh, making a statement of, of fact, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. Okay. All right. Appreciate the thoughts on that. Um, Let's go ahead and look at the chat room question before we go any farther with that. I'll bring it back up one more time. And we do have a response to that. So the question was, who did Paul and his companions make angry and what was the charge against them? Why is this different from previous similar circumstances? Brian, what is the chat room's reply to that? Okay, we do have a response to that in uh, in Facebook, uh, in our Facebook chat area. Uh, and Gregor Hinckley responded to that. Gregor said, some rich merchants who used a possessed girl to gain profit, to do things Romans can't do. Charges? Not clear, but being a Jew or a Christian was not a crime yet. Christ is king, maybe? But since he is a spiritual versus earthly king, Caesar was not supplanted. The big difference was that the Romans did this, not Jews. 
So I thought that was interesting as well that it was, um, it wasn't the case in point where like in, um, where was it? Thessalonica, <coughs> where the, um, Jews came in and stirred the people up. This appears to be purely Gentile in nature in their angry and their dispute against Paul and Silas. I, uh, I'm trying to do a little, uh, I was trying to do a back search. Uh, I've heard many times and now I can't find a, I can't quickly find a reference to it. That the Roman law on religion was was generically speaking to tolerate any religion that had been established, but not to permit the establishment of any new religions. That they often felt new religions offended the old gods, and so they uh, uh, they had a very precise rule against that. And like I said, if, if somebody has a link to something about that, that'd be helpful. But but I would suggest that that actually is the accusation uh, as we move along through Acts. The Jews will accuse. Uh, they will, the Jews will accuse the Christians of blasphemy, and when that doesn't gain traction, they bring it before the Romans and accuse them of creating a new religion, which ultimately will eventually create traction. What's going to be very interesting is that at first, the Romans won't be able to discern between Christianity and Judaism. They'll, they'll say, well, it's the same God, right? Isn't it just you know different ways of, of that same God? So it's pretty clear, and we'll see that in the book of Acts. We'll see all of this in the book of Acts. But ultimately, the, the biggest accusation they're going to make seems to be the one that they're, I think they're making right here. When they're saying that they're teaching customs that, as Romans, we're not allowed to receive, that would seem to be the idea that they're teaching about a new God. I've heard the same thing, Brian. And so, therefore, if I've heard it and you've heard it, it must be right. But it must be true. You know, <laughs> that they, they didn't tolerate anything new, but whatever was established when they conquered came into an area they allowed. Um yeah, and so as so I understand, right. that's why the Roman concept was, with, with just a few exceptions, any religion that existed was okay. But a new religion, like I said, from their perspective, a new religion could endanger your view with the old gods. So you didn't want, that was their logic, as I recall, behind that. So they wouldn't let, um, they wouldn't let a new religion. And like I said, that's going to be the accusation. And the reason that it doesn't do well is because Romans typically can't tell the difference uh, pagan Romans can't tell the difference between Christianity and Judaism. We'll see that, like I said, when when we have uh, is it Guy? Uh, uh, I just forgot his name. Um, the procurator uh, of Achaia. Um, uh, I can't remember his name. It starts with the G. Um, it's in Acts chapter what eighteen, I believe. Um, Nineteen. No, nobody remembers. <laughs> no, we're watching you flounder. Yeah, that's right. I appreciate that. Get get a zoom in on it if you can. Um, Tom but, says uh, Gaius. 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 I was thinking it was something a little different than Gaius, but uh, for some reason, I'm just I'm struggling about this. Okay. Uh, Gallio. Gallio. Gallio was it? That's it. Gallio. <laughs> Listen, anytime you're in a study with a bunch of preachers and we're live, don't do something like that that makes us all look like we have no idea what we're doing and what we know. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what was Noah's wife thing? Joan of Arc? Joan, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Tom says, Acts chapter 18, verse 12. That may be what you're thinking about there. That's it. That's it. Uh, I appreciate it. Tom, thanks for bailing me out there. Yeah. Don't they make a, a summer sausage, Gallio, or is that. Oh, never mind. It's a different one. Okay. Yeah. All right. Back just, to our I'll pick it up that topic. I'm, I've, I've sunk. So uh, <laughs> chapter 16, verse 25. Let's go ahead and start there. And uh, Shelton, if you would read for us verses 25 through verse 34. 
verse 25 through verse 34. All right. No problem. I'm in the New King James Version. We'll begin there in verse 25. It says, But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them out into the house, uh, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. All right, thank you, Shelton. Let's jump back now to the start of that text there. So here's what has happened, as we saw at the end of the previous section. Paul and Silas are now in prison. And it is interesting, and a couple questions do come to mind. We'll present the chat room question here in just a moment. But I would like for us to talk about, um, after we do the chat room question, uh, any ideas on what they might have been singing? Um, I think one of us threw, threw that in our little private chat. But here's the chat room question. Let's go ahead and send it over there. Do you see any significance to the jailer washing Paul and Silas's stripes? Do you see any significance to the jailer washing Paul and Silas's stripes? All right. Let's see. Since you did the reading with that, Shelton, let me ask you the question here. And it will relate to the idea of the singing there. But what when we look at Paul and Silas here in, in prison, what can we learn from their actions while in prison? Well, what would be some, some things we can glean from that? Well, we know that through their singing, there had to have been something uh, that was said and, and through the prayer that they were lifting up while they were in prison, that there was something that had to be said that the jailer knew these were religious men. And not only were they religious men, but they were men of God. Uh, we know that we are told in Scripture that we will be known as Christians by our conduct, by the way that we act, by the things that we do. Uh, we can even go as far to say by the clothes that we wear, separating ourselves from those of the world. And so we know that through Paul and Silas in prison, singing and praying to God, that there was something that was being said in those songs or in those prayers that got the jailer's attention that these were uh, religious men. And, uh, and we know that... Um, our singing is to be uh, uh, basically teaching one another through songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, we need to remember that. I think your question, going back to what lessons we might be able to learn from their singing and their teaching, is that when we sing, when we pray, we need to recognize that we might be teaching those that are around us. Sometimes I think that our song service, let's at least talk about in, in worship on Sunday mornings, can get to this point where we're looking for songs that sound good to the ear. We're looking for the melody that's involved in them or the sounds that we as humans hear. Uh, and we're looking for those better sounding songs. And 
that might not be a bad thing. But when we take focus away from what the songs are saying, uh, we don't know. There might be somebody visiting there with us that doesn't know what we stand for. And if we're singing songs that are not scriptural, if we're singing songs that uh, that don't teach the the doctrine of Christ, then then we are not singing the way that we should. And Paul and Silas definitely were singing and praying something that got the jailer's attention, knowing that they were men of God. Okay. All right. What we have here, um, and I guess, and I, let me throw this one to Brian. Do you figure that we are looking at maybe a span of maybe 15 years after the, the church was established? I have a reason for going in this direction. Um, you know, you say 15 years. We wonder if maybe the 14 years in Galatians chapter 2 uh, mm-hmm. reference there is 14 years after this, the, the, the gospel began. The events in Acts 15 might have occurred. And, and I, I'm wondering if that's kind of what you're thinking of with that number of years you pick, because that, this would be about 15 years if that's the case. So, so that would be a, probably a pretty good uh, estimation. Is that the number you're thinking of? Well, I'm I'm not certain. I'd have to pull some notes up, but I'm I'm going to guess somewhere between fifteen to twenty years after the church, after the the end, yeah, after eighty thirty to thirty three. Yeah. I know that they're able to kind of pay down those years a little better because, like with Gallio and others, they can kind of say when that person was a was a was in charge of that region. So a lot of the little tidbits and and Acts will do that. But like I said, I, I think Galatians two with the fourteen years. Uh, interim that Paul references that he's probably talking about 14 years since the beginning of the gospel or the beginning of the the church. Um, And like I said, that was probably Mm -hmm. right before Acts chapter 15. So at least a year or two have passed from that. So so I would say minimum of 15 years. All right. So, so here we've had the, had the church congregations assembling as, 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 as it has spread looking at Acts 8 and everything. And so the big question is what songs would they have been singing during the worship. Um, now, immediately what comes to mind would be the Psalms. You know, and I think that's pretty well accepted that in synagogue worship, what they would have sung would have been the Psalms. Um, but by the time we get to the writing of Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, there's a reference to Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we don't know what Paul and Silas were singing in prison, but they clearly, as the text says, um, they were singing hymns to God. You know, so that'd give us an idea, maybe. Yeah, I think the point maybe is better better mentioned about not specifically what songs they might have been singing or where they were singing out of, but what that singing accomplished, what the praying accomplished yeah. in, in getting the jailer to recognize them as godly men. Uh, because not to step on any further discussion we'll have about the section, but uh, after all these things happen, he knows who he needs to ask. What He says, he doesn't ask them, hey, do you know what I need to do to be saved? He says, what must I do? He knew they had the answer. All right, Tom, you said you had a thought? You might be muted. Yeah, you're muted, Tom. Okay, sorry about that. I, I was going to say, to add to the, the question about uh, what can we learn from them and the actions, you know, we've talked about the fact that they're singing, but look at their overall disposition. You know, one of the things that we uh, can observe in, in dealing with this is 
attitudes uh, are basically something that we can control. You cannot control circumstances, but you can control how you view those circumstances and the attitude that you have toward that. You have Paul and Silas, clearly just another of example, even though they're hurting because they've been beaten and so on, yet they're still praising God. And, and I think of the apostles in Acts chapter 541, uh, they they left from the beating rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to tack on one other comment about the singing, if I could, uh, to add on to what Shelton said. Shelton talked about how it must their songs were influencing others. Uh, we might also consider it influenced the other prisoners that none of them fled. Um, and probably the only the only indication we're given as to why that might be is whatever it was that Paul and Silas were singing was something the other prisoners uh, had drawn them more interest to stay than to run when the doors were broken open. Well, Brian, I've always just assumed that that, that was part of the um, the providential, miraculous working, you know, of the Lord, you know, why they didn't leave. But I hadn't thought about them saying because of what they'd heard. But, and, yeah, and, that, and of course, John, I, I've always thought, what well, John thought, that that was part of the miracle, and maybe it is, but that's a good point. Maybe that influenced them to stay too. Yeah, yeah and, and don't forget that in addition to singing, and, and uh, I might have been distracted, but they were also praying. Mm -hmm. They were praying. And, and, obviously they, yeah. and obviously they were praying out loud. You know, uh, you, you got the examples of Jesus, like in John uh, 18, where where he prays and, and, and he prays to the Father in such a way as he's also teaching at the same time. Yeah, yeah. It, all right, let's move on. That's that's a good point, Tom. It's a very good point because the prisoners were listening and there was they were praying, as you said, and they were definitely singing. And so there was great, great benefit here to the prisoners. So the next question I'd like to consider, though, with this, and um, why, Paul, why was the jailer going to take his own life? I've heard uh, historically, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but it's mentioned that he was given an account, uh, accountability for the prisoners in his charge. And if they were to escape, it would be his life that was on the line. Uh, and uh, he would be responsible for whatever sentence they had been given. And with that many being gone, certainly he would expect to be uh, under severe punishment uh, under Roman law. And so that may have been, been part of it. I mean, he may have thought that he would be more merciful in taking his own life than what the government might be in dealing out a punishment to a jailer who has let all the prisoners escape. Yeah, what? Well, and, uh, verse 23 tells us also, sorry, Don, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but verse 23 tells us that he was put in charge of keeping them securely. So uh, we know that that would have been his responsibility there. Sorry about that. Well, I was going to say, one, 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 in our Sunday morning adult class, we're currently in Acts chapter 12, and we saw P, uh, James beheaded and Peter being thrown into pr prison and the guards being killed uh, when Peter was miraculously delivered from the prison. And one of the footnotes in the study Bible, one of the study Bibles I have, tells us that, puts forth the idea, and this goes back to what I think Paul was saying, that the the whatever the sentence was for the prisoner if he escaped, the guard had to serve that sentence. So if it was death, you know, if they were like Peter was, was supposed to die, 
then the guards would die because they, you know, whoever was immediately charged, let Peter go. And so if some of these prisoners were there waiting to die, then the guard would himself have been fearful of that had they escaped or whatever other punishments he would have had to have been accountable for. So now, I don't know. I don't know if this was um, a region wide kind of thing. It says it's a great earthquake. I don't know if everyone in town would have felt it or not. Or if in the miracle that has worked here, that it was really just centrally located at the prison, shaking the prison. But uh, he doesn't feel like, that. the jailer doesn't think, well, I can just go and I can say, well, surely you'll understand that there was this terrible earthquake. And it was beyond any possibility uh, within the government of that, that day. Uh, it was not thought that here he could uh, offer up any kind of reasoning or excuse or anything else. It was just a hard and fast rule. Okay. Okay. All right. There, uh, we've got one more question in our outline. There's probably more things that we could talk about within the text here. So let's take a minute and kind of, as we glance over this, one of the things that I find most interesting and a little bit later, we'll talk about the washing of, of their stripes. But when the jailer saw what had happened, he came, you know, Paul said, do yourself no harm. The question he posed to Paul was very interesting. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And many times people look at the context and they, con they con contrast it with Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and verse 38, where in that case of point, they say, men and brother, what shall we do? And Peter tells him to repent and be baptized to every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Um, whereas in this case of point, he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, what do you think, what is a good answer to someone who would look at the case in point of the jailer and say, see, all you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? A short answer. <laughs> There's a lot of long answers we could give. Any thoughts on that? Well, as an unbeliever, uh, it would appear prior to this time uh, that that was the very first thing that he had to do. It, it was going to bring about uh, lots of other things in his life. But the very first thing he would need to do would be to believe. And without belief, it would be impossible for him to be saved. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's and, often... and I would, I would also right. add to that, that expression, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, is a, is a general statement. It's not the specifics because I mean, when you look at the text, the very next verse says, um, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. So, so Paul is just saying, you need to believe in Jesus. Now, let me tell you what that means. Yeah. And, and, and so, so it, it's a summary statement and that's the point. And, and I mean, uh, he preaches Jesus to him and you see the result of that is he obeys the gospel. You know, without it saying anywhere that Paul preached, uh, repent and be baptized. But you know he did. Yeah. And I think that's probably the best way to answer that particular question there. Has to do with the one in Acts 2.38 follows a sermon. So they mm -hmm. heard the message and they were convicted by the message to say, what must we do? In this case, he was convicted to ask the question based on the miracle he had seen. But he didn't. But it was not based on what he had heard and been taught. You know, and so the answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they went and taught him about Jesus. Yeah. You know, and then he What's acted that upon that. Yeah. All right. So, what about he and his household? What do you think about the, the like he and and Lydia? When it says he and his household were baptized, 
Who do you think that would have included and not included? How about you? I would uh, say whoever. I, uh, I mean, whoever in this household was willing to listen. I, I don't necessarily think that this is a statement that is saying every single person in your household will necessarily be saved, but it's available to them. And, uh, and you've got that type of an idea. And I know the, I know the arguments that come up about it is this is, these are the passages that are used to teach infant baptism and, 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 uh, implication that there were babies there or small children and so on. Doesn't say that. You, you, yeah. you just cannot, you cannot read that into this text. Yeah. That's, that's just right. There are some prerequisites here that would, uh, necessarily be understood by other passages and even within this passage yeah. uh, itself to be able to come to have this kind of moving faith that would cause you to want to turn your life around from any wrong that you've done and, and here to obey the word of the Lord that that is a, a powerful statement and so within his house uh, I, I can't tell you exactly how many or anything like that but it was the ones who uh, who would hear the preaching hear this teaching they would be willing to have this great faith in Christ as the Son of God and His great authority that that contains and allow it to direct their lives. That would eliminate some uh, who were not of an age or ability to do that, but it would also uh, include an awful lot of people here in in His house. That's a good point. It's a very, very good point. All right, let's jump to the chat room question unless there's any other thoughts or comments about this. Um, we do have some chat room discussion there. So let's go ahead and start with the um, the question regarding... I'll quit floundering around. Do you see any significance to the jailer washing Paul and Silas's stripes? And Brian, I think we have a response from Mr. Gregor, don't we? Yes, we do. Uh, Gregor replies that this is an act of repentance. The jailer saw their integrity and honesty. Not showing, uh, not running shows their innocence. By the actions of Paul and Silas, he saw the truth of their words. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, definitely an, an act of repentance for sure. And Gregor goes on to say, in a little bit different context, but he says, don't forget the other prisoners. They too stayed and, and seemed to have believed. There's an interesting... Um, and I think we were kind of talking about this earlier. Shelton was kind of mentioning this point, too. And Brian, your response to that this is a great point. He did this act of repentance before being baptized. Repentance comes before baptism. It's the idea of the change there. It's a good thought. All right, any other thoughts or comments from this section before we move on towards um, continue here within our reading? I think uh, one thing I wanted to mention there, John, uh, yes. the faith that Paul inside, that Paul tells him he has to have uh, here in this section that he had to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this belief is, you know, what we would sometimes call faith, you know, having a belief or having faith in Christ. Uh, but we see here in another, and we, we see many other circumstances in Scripture where this is true as well, but again here, we see that this is a faith that is working, uh, a faith that that uh, pushes him to work uh, and do the deeds that are necessary. Uh, and I think it, it's a good point to see that he did not just believe and then he was okay. You know, he, he, 
Paul didn't say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, and then they just went from there. But that belief that would save him was a belief that compelled him to uh, do the works that were necessary, and one of those works, of course, being uh, baptism. Okay. All right. That's a very good point. Very good point. There is one more thought that came to mind, and, and I'm going to bring it up, not so much to drag out our discussion, but we do have a little bit of extra time because of last week having to cut short and the material that we're looking at here tonight. But I've seen people make use of the phrase in the same hour of the night as a as evidence that the conversion process might be that easy. That, that we should look for, as a matter of fact, I think there's a book called In the Same Hour of the Night that may talk about such a, a swift uh, conversion process. Well, what, what in practical applications, practical, practically speaking, what are your thoughts on that? Can we expect com- all conversions to be that quick? Or mm-hmm. is there something more realistic about it? Um, let's, let's start with you, Paul. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I can give Paul's thoughts since he's away. Oh, sorry. I'm not looking at the screen. Go ahead, Brian. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, well, so, so since I've never had the experience that somebody had. Well, that's not true. Uh, one out of maybe uh, dozens has has responded the first time, the moment I sat down and spoke for them for, for a few hours about the, the plan of salvation. Uh, but by and large, it, it has taken sometimes weeks, months, many months uh, to persuade people to uh, convict people. And so uh, it could be I'm doing something wrong, but uh, I think more likely that's just not really a pattern that we're seeing here. We're seeing a lot of people that are convicted, you know, on the spur of the moment because of the circumstances rather than, you know, the, the method of preaching. Do you think sometimes the personality of the speaker might have something to do with the convert, the quick conversion? It might, it might also be that we're just not seeing the hundreds of times where Paul preached to people for months and didn't convert yeah. them or took a long time to convert them. We might just be seeing, like I said, we know we're only seeing a, 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 just a, a, a tiny sliver of the, the, the main amount of uh, conversions that went on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, and bear, in mind that, bear in mind the circumstances that leads to this. Yeah. I mean, I mean don't forget the miracles here. You know, and, and, uh, very likely, very likely the, the, uh, prison keeper knew why Paul and Silas were there. In other words, he knew the charges. It, it's possible that he knew what had happened the day before, you know, with the beatings and, and, and about his preaching and so on. And, uh, this, mir- the, this miracle that happens and so on with, with, with the shaking of the prison, the loosing of the chains and all that. And Paul stops him from killing himself. That's that's what you call a life changing event. You know, you know, yeah. uh, there's sometimes there's sometimes you come across people who have heard the gospel over and over and clearly they have a hardened heart. They're the wayside. But something happens in their life and all of a sudden they're ready to respond and they're ready to respond right now. Yeah. But that's not the rule. That's the exception. As a matter of fact, I I think we sometimes make a bigger do do greater harm by trying to pressure somebody into an immediate response within an hour as opposed to taking the time to make sure that they understand a few grounded principles before we baptize them or 
you know, even when they respond and say they want to be baptized, you need to make sure they understand what they're doing and why. Well, and that's a very valid point. Um, the majority of conversions in the first half of Acts happened after they saw some sort of miracle and then they yeah. heard the truth. You know, most of them, even when it comes down to Sergius Paulus, you know, he, he saw everything that Paul and them had done to um, the sorcerer, Elamus, and it was still the word that convicted him, but you had that miracle on the outset. So there, and, and I like your point, the equivalent to the jailer today might be someone who's gone through a major life crisis who recognizes their need. You know, and they may be more, you know, more fast to receive the word, but that's not the rule of thumb, though. Yeah. You know, we hear some people, though, sometimes say, oh, I just don't think I know enough yet. Yeah. Uh, or uh, I, I want to I know more about this. And, and while I, I would not push someone who felt like they were unready, uh, I would point them to the jailer and just wonder, you know, in his experience, even if he had been witness to all those things that had happened uh, that landed Paul in prison, even if he had witnessed that, the teaching was pretty limited. Uh, he knew only a few fundamental things. And, and in learning those few fundamental things here, uh, he was ready to be baptized. That's true. That's true. Shelton, any thoughts? Yeah, uh, I, I agree with what Paul was saying there. That was one of the thoughts that I wanted to bring out was the, what was what Paul said there. So I think that was well said. Uh, but another thing too, I think, yeah, you know, every, I agree with everything that's been said. Uh, however, when we look at, you know, this account of his salvation, he did respond quickly to hearing the word in the same hour. And, and I think that it's true. That's what's been said that that's not the rule. But I think what the rule is here is the urgency that we need to have with baptism. Once that individual is at that point, uh, once, once an individual has gotten to the point to where, uh, like Paul said, you know, they believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. They understand what baptism is and they understand the need for it. Uh, there's no time to waste. You know, after that, there's a, there needs to be an urgency uh, about getting that done. Uh, you know, we, we see sometimes our denominational friends will wait uh, for times to where there will be several in attendance and they can baptize several at the same time uh, and make a public showing of the faith that they have. And that's not what we see here. If that were the case, uh, Paul and Silas would have waited until the next day at a common time where there would have been a lot of people and said, look at these men. They want to give a public showing of their faith. Uh, the urgency of baptism was not about a public showing of their faith, but this individual, these individuals rather in his household, they understood and there was an urgency about having their sins removed from them. Okay. That's a good point. Very good thought there. All right, let's see. John, there is a chat comment. Yeah, just, just, just a real quick thought. Dealing with all of these examples that we talk about of immediate conversions in the book of Acts, Realize that we don't know what they already knew, you know, especially when you're talking about the Jews. They were looking for the Messiah and saw. And so all Paul or whoever or Peter who had to do was connect the dots and introduce Jesus as that one. And they were ready to respond on that. So what we have recorded is just the final statement or the final event. We don't know everything that preceded that. And, and my point is, is a, a lot of when you talk about instant responses, there's a lot of background that we may not be aware of uh, that leads up to that occasion. Yeah.
that's a good point. Good point. All right, Brian, I think we have one more comment in the chat room before we hit our next section there. What is that? We do. We have a comment from Gregor, uh, just in our discussion here, the parable of the soils. It takes time to grow. As John said, either miracles or people that believe, but I, but did not know the whole truth, uh, Cornelius, etc. So, uh, you know, it's kind of funny, Gregor, I had also was thinking of the parable of the soils, too, in uh, the certain things, in these circumstances. I was thinking also, though, the idea that if the seed sits too long, Satan comes along and takes it away. So uh, there's a couple of different ways to look at that, but that, that's exactly what I was thinking as well. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. When someone hears what they need to do and they don't do it, then they hear it again and they don't do it and they hear it again and they don't do it. Uh, it certainly builds up calluses to the truth. Uh, it's easier for them to sit and to listen or to sit across the, not necessarily in a sermon, but to sit across the table and to hear someone uh, try to share with them the gospel message and what they need to do. And the, the more each time they put it off, each time they say no, uh, it's easier to say no the next time. That's right. Very good point. Very good point. All right, let's go ahead and read the last section now. And Paul, if you would read for us beginning in verse 35 and read through the end of the chapter, which should be verse 40. Will do. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. Then Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. All right. Thank you, Paul, for reading that. Looking now. There we go. So we don't have a... Um, chat room question brian were you working on one earlier for this section i was i didn't i didn't know if you wanted to have one out there um my chat room question was going i'll go ahead and throw it out there if i have it um i was wondering why do you think that paul and silas whenever they kind of had this uh the the magistrates were the ones who had done wrong why would paul and silas willingly leave the town when they were told to do so so I was kind of wondering what everybody thought of that. So knowing I'll throw that out there as a possible check question. If somebody uh, knowing that the magistrates had committed a terrible crime, why would Paul and Silas willingly leave? Okay, yeah. That's something to think about there. <clears throat> Definitely. All right, so the last section here is pretty straightforward, um, pretty simple. When we look at their departure here, it, it, I'm, going to, I'm going to deduce from it that the magistrate probably realized they had no reason to keep them. Um, they had brought him in. They had been beaten. Uh, they're not going to hold him over for any type of trial, nothing like that. They're going to go ahead and send them on out and tell them that they were now free to go. However, and as has been pointed out by Brian, there was something seriously wrong that had been done here. 
when you were a Roman citizen, there were certain privileges that came to actually being a Roman citizen. Um, now, Ryan, was it ever possible to purchase your Roman citizenship? Yeah, we know that later on in the book of Acts, uh, as Paul speaks about being born a Roman citizen, uh, one of the Roman guards or centurions holding him speaks about having purchased his citizenship at a great price. Yeah. Whereas Paul, on the other hand, was born, you know, and, and he, th this will come up again in later situations there. But they realized that they had done something wrong against the law there. Um, they had violated. We, we talk about our rights being violated today. Uh, you'll hear people make make those claims. Paul definitely uh, was subject to that. They had had, he had had his um, uh, rights violated as a Roman citizen. But let me ask a question, though, and I guess I'm trying to look right here at our own notes that we've got before us here. Let's see. Before, are, are there any thoughts or comments about this section before we look at um, the statement there in verse 40 that we'll talk about at the end of this? Um, any <laughs> thoughts or comments? Let's start with Paul, you, Paul. Or, yeah, Paul. Me? Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Paul had a little attitude, I think. <laughs> and uh, we see some of his personality coming coming here. They've beaten us openly, and they're going to quietly send us away. Uh, I don't think so. And I kind of like that about Paul. Kind of a, kind of a little uh, boldness, a little little bit of attitude there. And, uh, and we can talk about why he eventually did leave. But even when they said, just go ahead and go, he does not immediately leave. He doesn't just go straight to the to the edge of town and and keep going, uh, but uh, I thought that was it was interesting to see uh, some of the personality of Paul come shining through in the uh, in the account. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, any other thoughts on this particular section? All right, let's go ahead and look at the last question. What we have for us in our little outline. And, and this focuses our attention on verse 40 there. Matter of fact, let me see if I can bring the text back up because I thought this was interesting in preparation for this lesson. So we read in verse 40, so they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. All right, so notice that they're still in Philippi. They leave prison and they now go back to Lydia's house. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So this kind of prompted a question in my brain. Um, we, if you make the assumption that the church in F, the church of Philippi, began with the conversion of Lydia's household, then it would kind of seem to reason that the brethren he's referencing here uh, was Lydia and her family. But is it might it also be possible that there were other brethren? They are living in Philippi. Maybe the one, and someone just threw in there, maybe what about Paul's traveling companions? And that's a possibility too. But could there have been other Christians in Philippi, a church already there, a congregation, and um, this Lydia was then added to that group? Any thoughts about that? Pers personally, I don't think there was. You know, you, uh, it's possible, but, but just by, but just by the idea, of Paul going places where the gospel had not been preached. I mean, he was sent to Macedonia. 
And 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 that's where this was when I say sent the Holy Spirit called him to go there. Uh we don't know how long Paul had been in Philippi. It very likely this didn't happen in two or three days. We're talking more like probably two, three, four weeks. Not long enough. He wanted to stay a little longer, had to leave or needed to leave and so on. But who knows who else had been converted in that time? And maybe because of Lydia's situation, she's got the brethren there. And so they go see the brethren before they leave to give them a final word of encouragement. And I think there's a message there to the brethren to stand fast. You'll be, you will be okay. And it could have been a message to the magistrates from the standpoint of they had already broken the law by beating Paul and Silas, uncondemned Romans and so on. And so by letting the city know, well, these people are with us. Maybe that could have helped them a little bit. I don't know. But okay. Just a thought. Well, you forgot about another family, and that yeah. kind of—that's that, our next question. There, um, the the bread, the reference to the brothers here, the brethren, very well probably included the Philippian jailer's household as well, and his family now, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they left the next day, but but surely when they went back to Lydia's house, it would be hard to imagine that there was not the introduction of the jailer's family to Lydia's family. You know, and any other brethren that may have been traveling with them, or maybe ha- or had been, if they'd been converted before. Think about the day of Pentecost and so forth. Um, yeah, I, I, I believe that more than just these were converted. You know, just remember the book of Acts is not detailed. Right. It, it is, or no, excuse me, it is detailed. It's not exhaustive. There you go. That's, yeah. yeah. I know what you meant, but that's a good way of putting it. All right. So any, any thoughts about that idea? Paul, you got any ideas on it? Um, no, I, I, I had a similar thought that Tom mentioned there that uh, when I thought about why Paul would have kind of, I think the modern term would be he had a little swagger about it, let them come and let us go. And yeah. then, uh, and then, well, okay, we'll leave the city, but I'm going to go over to Lydia's house first. And I'm going to see the brethren and then I'll maybe think about leaving this town. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe that would have made it easier on, on if they were going to persecute future situations. Maybe it would have made it a little easier on those who remain there uh, in Philippi. Well, you think about when the apostles were released from jail, when they were all arrested, they went back and the brethren rejoiced. When Peter was you know got out of prison, he went back and the brethren rejoiced. And so it makes sense that they would do that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, and, 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 and just simply don't forget the brethren needed to be encouraged. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Shelton, any thoughts on this? Uh, no, I, I kind of threw that out there, too, that the brethren might be talking just about Lydia and her household, but that's an assumption like the rest of it. Uh, I think what you're saying could be true, and we know for a fact household of the jailer was uh, now involved, included in the brethren, uh, and they were doing preaching there when they were arrested. Uh, yeah. So who knows, you know, what conversions, like Tom said, you know, the, the book of Acts is not exhaustive. So who knows what other conversions there we might, you know, not hear about. But uh, I just I kind of threw that out there that it could possibly just be talking about Lydia and her household. But, you know, it, it can very easily be talking about more, too. So, well, and, and I think someone may have touched on this, but in verse 18 with that young lady and this she kept doing for many days. So, you know, I think Tom mentioned we're probably looking at maybe a span of weeks 
of teaching yeah. going on too. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, one one last thing uh, is was interesting to me. And I didn't bring this out in in the in the context, but uh, when the keeper came, he he gets the report, let them go. He comes back and uh, he says, uh, "Depart, go in peace." And I think maybe the idea there is, uh, you know, Paul, you've got the chance, go ahead or, or something. But uh, but you know, he has kind of a meek attitude about it, a quiet. He doesn't want. Uh, it seems like he doesn't want trouble. But here we see uh, that that Paul has a different idea about that that we've already discussed. All right, all right. Tom, any further thoughts? Yeah, you know, I was just making the observation, you know, uh, shortly after Paul leaves, uh, the Philippians will support Paul. You know, they're sending support to him. And to me, that kind of indicates that you probably have a, a decent-sized group. That's not necessarily the case, but uh, uh, you possibly would have more so that they're able with resources to send support on more than one occasion to Paul. All right, good thought. Brian, any final thoughts on this section? Not, not really. No, I, I, we do have an answer to our uh, question in the chat. All right, we well, bring said, it in now or... since we have exhausted this, <laughs> let's go ahead and looks like. Um, well, <laughs> let's read the question again. It was real simple. Knowing that the magistrate had committed terrible crime, why would Paul and Silas willingly leave? What was the answer to that question, Brian? So Gregor Hinckley told us all forces the magistrate to show up and take them from the prison, publicly demonstrating their innocence. The punishment for the magistrate may have been very severe, and Christ preaches about forgiveness. Paul demonstrates it here. I, I was neat. I hadn't thought about the idea that here Paul very publicly, you know, lets somebody off the hook, and uh, uh, there's a there's a profound demonstration of forgiveness in that. Yeah. And Gregor went on. He pointed something out that we missed, kind of in our discussion. Uh, that I hadn't even considered. What what was that interesting statement? Uh, that Lydia was a Jew and the jailer was a Gentile. Yeah, yeah, right off the bat. I mean, the first two yeah. families, if you would, of the congregation, the way we understand it. Yeah, that is very cool. Yeah, yeah I agree. It is, and I'd never thought about it. And then one fella gave a really interesting comment. Would you like to self-servingly bring that in, Brian? Well, yeah. I think actually this is the same comment that Paul made earlier, too, uh, that I was wondering if by making a public demonstration, in other words, by making them come get him and parading him through town, uh, then going to the house where they were, where the brethren are meeting, that these magistrates really are probably going to think twice about causing problems for the Christians in that town. I think Paul made that statement as well earlier that, that yeah. doing all this might kind of make them kind of a Paul hold something over them, so to speak. You know, remember that time you you had me beaten illegally, you know, that this is kind of a, you know, uh, they're going to think twice before they cause problems for the Christians again. Yeah, it's a good point. Very good point. All righty. Well, that brings us to the end of another. Wow, it is already 1210. I apologize, guys. I didn't realize we'd already passed the hour mark there. We'd like to thank you so much for joining us for our study today. Uh, next week, who has chapter 17 now in our discussions? Is it Tom? I believe it's Paul. Paul. I believe it's Paul. Paul. Um, I'll go ahead and take 17. Yeah. I think Paul Brian, said, Paul. Brian said he had done an outline on it already, and I'll, I'll take a look at that and see if I can walk through that with us. Okay. 
Sounds like a good plan. The next week, Paul will lead the study with Acts chapter 17. Thank you so much for joining us for our study today. Uh, we hope that maybe we have been able to factor the truth into your life as well as our own lives. That's ultimately the goal behind these studies to see what lessons we can learn as we as we go through these biblical texts. If everything goes according to plan, next Wednesday we will continue our studies at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. In the Eastern Time Zone, that's noon. 9 a.m. Pacific Time. 10 a.m. Mountain Time. That's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.